the book of Psalms is uh, different than the three books of the Bible that we've gone through together now as a church on Sunday mornings. Uh, Mark's gospel, we went through Mark's gospel. James's letter, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, these are all uh, singular writings by, by single authors, okay, to, uh, to a group of people. And, and the Psalms, though, they're, they're a collection of 150 different poems, uh, different writings by several different authors, authors like Moses, like uh, King David and, and Solomon, and, and then various Levites who served as worship leaders in the house of the Lord. Now, collectively, these Psalms uh, span over a wide range of Israel's history, and they sort of tell a story uh, of Israel's relationship to God, but they cover this wide range of history uh, of Israel's history from the Exodus, when God brought them out of, of slavery in Egypt, all the way through uh, the kingdom, the monarchy, where you know kings like David and Solomon reigned, to the 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 uh, the splitting of the kingdom and and the the exile into uh, captivity in Babylon and Assyria, to the post-exile times of Israel. And so this this book title, the the book of Psalms, it comes from an English rendering of the Greek word that means song. Okay. The Hebrew name for the, for the book of Psalms also means praises. And so we kind of get this idea then that the primary purpose of the Psalms was to guide the nation of Israel into public or in the public worship of God as they gathered together, as they came to the temple of the Lord to worship him, as they gathered as, as the people of God, the Psalms guided their worship. And so essentially it's a, it's a collective uh, psalter or, or uh, a hymn book if you will, okay, for God's people. Now, these writings were, were set to music. They're poems. They're, they guided uh, God's people in, in corporately expressing things like praise and adoration and thanksgiving and lament and confession of sin, cries for help, trust in God's sovereign rule and in his wisdom and his faithfulness and his goodness. They help remind us as God's people that he's worthy of our praise, right? And in, in in any and every situation and emotion that we experience, we can translate that into praise of God and, and that our worship of God actually shapes our emotions and our experiences to a glorious purpose. That as believers, there's nothing that we go through, there's nothing that we feel that God doesn't understand and that we can't bring to him as a sacrifice of praise. One author's dubbed the Psalms as messianic Music. Now, when we hear the word Messiah, who do we think of? Jesus, right? Because he is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. And just like everything else in the Old Testament, the Psalms ultimately point to him. Uh, but Messiah is not uh, just the name or the title of Jesus. It's a Hebrew word that means anointed one. And so as king of Israel, David is a Messiah, Solomon is a Messiah. Moses is a Messiah. They're the ones that are anointed by God to rule over his people. Just like Christ, we tend to just associate it with Jesus' name, but it's a title. It's given to him. He is the Christ. Christ is the Greek word that means anointed one. So Messiah and Christ, Hebrew and Greek, that's the same thing. So in the general sense of the term, Again, King David is a Messiah or a Christ of Israel but because he was God's anointed one to rule over those people, but he wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't 
the Christ, or the anointed one whose rule would be established forever. Luke 24, the resurrected Jesus walked along the road to Emmaus with two disciples, and he told them, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so the Psalms, many of which were written by a temporary Messiah like King David, ultimately point the worshipers, the people of God, to the coming Messiah, King Jesus the Christ, whose messianic rule will never end. And that's why Jesus himself then can take David's words and make them his own as he does in a psalm like Psalm 22, which we'll look at on Good Friday. Now the entire Psalter, this this whole hymn book, it's arranged into five sections known as books, book one through five. And one commentator describes the flow over the course of these five books. Now we have Lots of different things, the different types of psalms mixed in through these books. But the progression overall, he calls it a progressive movement from shadow to sunlight, from, triumph to, uh, from tribulation to triumph, from lament to praise. The psalms help bring the minds and the hearts and the voices of God's people together in praise to the one who created and redeemed them and who promised to give them a forever king and a forever kingdom. And as we'll see in Psalm 103 today, the Lord's joy in redeeming us as his people leads to our joy in praising him as our God. Is God worthy of our worship? I'm going to argue that this morning we can't read Psalm 103 and come to any other conclusion than an emphatic yes. Okay? So I want to, Psalm 103, it's a psalm of praise. It begins with a summons of praise. Uh, to God, then it gives reasons for praise to God, and then it ends again with a, a return to a summons for praise. So as I read this this morning, I want you to see if you can find those things in here, and then we'll pray and we'll jump in. Psalm 103, my soul bless the Lord, and all that is within me bless his holy name. My soul bless the Lord, and do not forget all his benefits. He forgives all your iniquity, he heals all your diseases, he redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with good things. Your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He revealed his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows that we are made what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He blooms like a flower of the field. When the wind passes over it, it vanishes, and its place is no longer known. But from eternity to eternity, the Lord's faithful love is toward those who fear him, and his righteousness toward the grandchildren of those who keep his covenant, who remember to observe his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, all his angels of great strength who do his word, obedient to his command. Bless the Lord, all his armies, his servants who do his will. 
Bless the Lord, all his works, and all the places where he rules. My soul, bless the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word that guides and directs us straight to Jesus. I pray this morning that we would see him in all his glory, and we would bow in worship to our king. In Jesus' name, amen. The whole sum of our wisdom, wisdom that is which deserves to be called true and assured, broadly consists of two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. This is how John Calvin begins his book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. And then he goes on to say that the purpose of the knowledge of God is to show not only that there is one God whom all must worship and honor, but also that he is the fount of all truth, wisdom, goodness, righteousness, judgment, mercy, power, and holiness. And the purpose of knowledge of ourselves is to show us our weakness, misery, vanity, and vileness, to fill us with despair, distrust, and hatred of ourselves, and then to kindle in us the desire to seek God. For in him is found all that is good, and of which we ourselves are emptied and deprived. To know God and to know ourselves, this is exactly the kind of wisdom that David will show us here in Psalm 103 this morning. We're going to get a very accurate diagnosis of God's heart and of our own heart. And if we pay attention, if we come to it in humility and receive what David says, we will not walk away in despair this morning. Yes, we need to have an accurate view of ourselves, and it's not a pretty one. But if we have an accurate view of God, his majesty will far outweigh our depravity. And we won't walk away in despair, we'll walk away in praise we need to understand this morning through this psalm that the joy of the Lord, that the Lord takes joy in something. And the joy of the Lord is to show his faithful love and mercy to those who don't deserve it. And the joy then of our hearts is to know the Lord who has shown us his faithful love and mercy. This is wisdom, to know that we need forgiveness and to know the God who forgives us. When we see God for who he truly is and we see ourselves for who we truly are, his faithful love and compassion then is magnified to those who understand that they deserve his righteous wrath and judgment. And when we understand what we've been given instead, we can't help but respond in worship. And so we're going to read back through this psalm. We're going to look at these parts together. And it starts with a summons of praise to God. For the individual worshiper, look at verse 1. My soul, bless the Lord, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. My soul, bless the Lord, and do not forget all his benefits. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with good things. Your youth is renewed like the eagle. Now remember, this is a song, uh, just like all the other songs, uh, psalms in, in the book of Psalms. It's designed to be sung corporately. But David starts this psalm out by drawing himself and then by extension the individual worshiper who comes and sings this song to urge his or her own soul to focus on God and his goodness so that they can then be united together in praise to this God. The you and the your here in verses 3 through 5, that's singular. It points back to my soul 
It's the individual counseling himself or herself. You see, when we understand when, when who God is and, and what he's done becomes personal to us, then we're drawn uh, all the more into a desire to bless him, a desire to, to praise and declare the praises of his holy name. God said, or David says God's name is holy. We can't just gloss over that, right? That, that's, a, that's a serious statement right there. God is set apart. He's, he's other than, if we're, if we're understanding who God is and who we are, this is, this is a huge category right here. His name is reflective of his nature and his character and his conduct. He's Yahweh. He's the I am. There's no one like him. No one. After God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai. He gave them his law. While Moses was up on the mountain with God, the people grew anxious and, and they made a golden calf for themselves. Maybe you're familiar with this story. And then they worshiped it as the God who brought them out of Egypt. When Moses came down the mountain, he and the Levites went through the camp and they killed about 3,000 men who were guilty of this blasphemous idolatry. And then God inflicted on top of that a plague on the people as a divine punishment for their sin against him. Later, in Exodus 34, God brings Moses back up to the mountain and he shows Moses his glory. Moses asked, let me see your glory. God says, I'll, 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 I'll let all my goodness pass before you. And the way he does that is to declare his name. And here's what he says in Exodus 34, 5 through 7. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, being Moses, and proclaimed his name, the Lord the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. This is what it means for God to be holy. At the beginning of, the, of Psalm 103, David counsels his own soul and invites then the individual worshiper who's, who's singing this psalm to remember this God and the benefits of knowing him. And notice the contrast here. David only needs to use one word for God. And we get this picture, right? He characterizes God as holy, but what are the words David uses to characterize the worshiper? In the, in the verses that follow. Iniquity, disease, death. But because God is who God is, he forgives all the worshipers' iniquities. And he heals all the worshipers' disease. Now when we read that in light of Israel's history with God, we understand that God used oftentimes diseases like plagues to punish the people of Israel for their sinful disobedience. We saw that with the golden cow. David couples forgiveness and healing here probably to, to remind the worshiper along with forgiveness comes this reversal of divine punishment. Not only does God forgive and heal, but he also redeems the worshiper's life from the pit. He rescues the worshiper from the grave and the grip of death brought about by sin. And instead of being brought low into death, the worshiper is raised up 
and crowned with faithful love and compassion. And what's even more is God just keeps piling it on. He satisfies the worshiper with good things and he renews the worshiper's strength. Now, are you getting a sense that the worshiper is getting what they do not deserve? That's the whole point. See, when we're honest about what we deserve from God because of our sin and God's holiness, then the reality of what he gives us instead ought to draw our innermost being into voluntary praise, into an outward burst of joy, celebrating this God for his grace. It sounds a lot like Ephesians 1, right? Remember Ephesians 1? God's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ to the praise of his glorious grace, right? In these opening verses in Psalm 103, David is, he's only touching the tip of the iceberg. He just, he just gives the summons here to praise. Praise God by directing his soul to begin to focus on the Lord. It's in the next section that he gives the reasons to praise God. Look at verse 6. The Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He revealed his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love. Toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of God's throne, according to Psalm 97 to you. You just think about that. The foundations of his throne. And because God's sovereign rule is established by righteousness and justice, he acts on behalf of all those then who are oppressed in un, by unrighteousness and injustice. But he does it especially for those people whom he's chosen for himself. God showed his deeds to Israel by bringing them out of Egypt, by freeing them from slavery. The, the Israelites witnessed the ten plagues that God sent on Egypt as divine judgment. And, and they saw God divide the Red Sea so that they could cross over on dry ground and escape Egypt's pursuit. They watched God throw the Egyptian forces into confusion with a pillar of fire and cloud. And then they watched as God closed the waters over, back over the Egyptians, uh, the waters of the Red Sea, and destroyed Pharaoh's entire army. God provided them with manna, provided them with quail, and water as they traveled to Mount Sinai. But the people of, uh, of God grumbled and complained. After the incident with the golden calf, God told Moses, listen, you, you take them up to the, to the land I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I will not go with them. They're stiff-necked people. God wasn't going to go up with them because of their sin. God's holy. He's other than. He's separate Moses interceded on behalf of the people, begged God to come with them. In Genesis 33, he told the Lord, please, please teach me your ways. And I will know you so that I may find favor with you. Psalm 25.10 says, all the Lord's ways show faithful love and truth to those who keep his covenant 
and decrees. That's exactly what David gives as the reason for God's praise here in Psalm 103. Did you notice the language in verse 8 through 10? Sounds a lot like the way the Lord described himself to Moses in Exodus 34, right? He's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. In essence, David says this about God. He says, worship God because he is who he says he is. Everything that he gave to Moses as, as the descriptor of, of himself, that's all true. God has a history of responding to Israel's sins with compassion, with faithful love, with patience and grace. David knows this firsthand as a king of Israel who committed not only adultery but also murder. He's speaking not just the truth about God but an experiential knowledge and understanding of that. Though God disciplines his people for uh, and, and rightfully calls them out on their sin, he has not dealt with them as their sins deserve or repaid them according to their iniquities. Instead, God remains faithful to them because as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. It's abundant beyond measure. Do we ever reach a ceiling when we go up? I can right here. But that's not what David's talking about. As high as the heavens are above the earth. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed his people's transgressions from them. If you travel east and you keep going in that way, guess what? You'll never get to west. Isn't that amazing? That is how sufficient and how total God's forgiveness is for you, for those who fear him. Isaiah 43, 25, God says, I am the one. I sweep away your transgressions for my own sake and remember your sins no more. How often do we remember the sins that God's already forgiven us for and linger in those? Pile guilt back on where God has removed it. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. In tenderness, in tenderness, God disciplines his people as his own children. The Gospel Transformation Study Bible says that the Lord is eager. I love that. He's eager to show compassion to all who rely wholly on his grace. Why? Look at verse 14. For he knows what, that what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He blooms like a flower of the field. When the wind passes over it, it vanishes. And its place is no longer known. But from eternity to eternity, the Lord's faithful love is toward those who fear him and his righteousness toward the grandchildren of those who keep his covenant, who remember to observe his precepts. God knows what we're made of because God made us. David's words in verse 14 draw the worshiper back to the creation account in Genesis 2, 7. It says, the Lord God formed the man out of, what? The dust. From the ground. And he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and the man became a living being. David is comparing the created to the creator here. 
Man's finiteness and, and frailty are set against God's infiniteness and his faithfulness. Not only did God make man from the dust, but because of man's sin, God cursed man to return to the dust in death. But did you catch what David said? There's no beginning or end to the Lord's faithful love. Why? Because there's no beginning or end to the Lord. Man's like grass that withers, like a flower that fades. But from eternity to eternity, the Lord's faithful love remains. Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. Because God is from eternity to eternity, guess what? So is his faithful love to those who fear him and his righteousness toward the grandchildren of those who keep his covenant. God's faithful love far outlasts your life here on this earth. We ought to thank him for that. But Israel failed God over and over and over, right? They feared other nations more than they feared the Lord. They began to worship other gods. They broke the covenant that God made with them. They forgot his precepts. They did what was right in their own eyes over and over and over again, they turned away from the one who brought them out of Egypt to be his own possession. And so God's compassion and his mercy, his grace and his patience and his forgiveness and his faithful love cannot be based on their obedience to him. What do they deserve? They deserve judgment and wrath. It would be righteous and good because God is holy. God can't leave any sin unpunished. So then the question begs to be asked, how does God forgive their disobedience and still be holy? How can he not hold them accountable for their sins against him? You know where this is going. As Christians, we know this. We know this answer because someone else was held accountable in their place. Amen? Romans 3.21 through 26, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction, Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. To be received by obedience, a whole pile of good works, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, in his, in his loving, faithful patience and compassion, he had passed over former sins. Not put them out and overlooked them and wasn't going to do anything about them, but he knew something was coming. It was to show his righteousness now at the present time so that he might be just, prove himself to still be holy, but also to be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, the reason that God did not deal with his people as their sins deserve is because he has dealt with Jesus as their sins deserve. The reason that he did not repay them according to their iniquities is because his own son paid their debt. In full. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. That's what we earn. We earn death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because God is holy, he must condemn 
and punish sin. If he lets sin go unpunished, then he no longer executes acts of righteousness and justice. You can't proclaim that about him and have it be true anymore because he's no longer holy. But he doesn't let sin go unpunished. The cross proves this, right? It proves that God is holy and that he does execute acts of righteousness and justice because sin was punished and death was the payment. But the cross also reveals God's abounding, faithful love that goes higher than the heavens and as far as east is from the west. This love for his people because he gave his own son to be sacrificed in their place. And the son himself willingly gave his own life to save sinners who deserve nothing, not compassion, not love, not mercy, but judgment and wrath. Jesus' blood became the propitiation, satisfied God's wrath, brought his, his righteous anger to an end, and he, it, it turned into favor for those who don't deserve it so that they could be forgiven for their sins and justified, being made righteous in God's sight by faith in Jesus. Back to Ephesians, you're saved by grace, right? This is from God, it's not from you. But we need to understand what David makes clear here in this psalm. You see, those who receive these benefits from the God who forgives and heals and redeems and satisfies are those who fear him. Those who believe that that God is who he says he is and does what he says he'll do. Those who, in view of God's holiness, the knowledge of God, see themselves clearly. They know themselves to be ruined sinners and they tremble and yet they draw near to him who loved them as his own children because they know that he's a compassionate and loving father who forgives. You see, it's those who obey him not because they're able but because they do so in total dependence upon the spirit he's given them. And upon his compassionate and gracious and merciful and faithful love. David and the people of Israel who feared the Lord, they didn't know exactly how God would establish his eternal reign. Right? Through the coming Messiah. But they did believe that the Messiah would come. They believed God's promise. They didn't know that God himself would come in the flesh and give his own life as a ransom for their sin, but they believed God to be a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, far beyond themselves, forgiving iniquity and rebellion and sin. And they believed that he would not leave the guilty unpunished, and so they sought his forgiveness by faith knowing that no amount of their own obedience could reconcile the relationship that they had broken through their own disobedience. They sought God's mercy, appealing to his faithfulness rather than their own. And and God, whose faithful love is toward them from eternity to eternity, he counted their faith as righteousness. Why? Because he knew what was coming. He looked forward to the life and death and resurrection of his son Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one who would take the judgment that they deserved and give them his own righteousness instead. And now 2,000 years after Jesus came, after he 
lived and he died and he rose from the grave and now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. We, as, as those who, who tremble at God's holiness and yet draw near to him because of his love, we look back on Christ's life and death and resurrection with faith in all that he's done. We believe that he's done all the work necessary to reconcile us to God, even though we also deserve to be condemned. We know that our obedience doesn't enable us to draw near to God in worship. We know that Christ's obedience enables us to do so. We know that our Heavenly Father disciplines us in love as His children and we, when we disobey His commands. But because of Jesus, we no longer need to fear God's holy wrath as punishment against us for our sin. We need to understand this right here. He continues to correct us, but He no longer condemns us. That is grace like no other. That a God would put all of our condemnation on his own son. See, we believe that Jesus, and only Jesus, and the work that he did on the cross, because of that, the Father has not dealt with us as our sins deserve. He has not repaid us according to our iniquities, but instead, what's he given us? Compassion faithful love. He has forgiven all our iniquity and he's removed our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. He's redeemed our lives from the pit because Jesus rose from the grave. And one day our broken down and disease-ridden bodies will be completely healed and made perfect with him. And while we wait for Jesus to return, our compassionate heavenly father continues to satisfy us with his goodness and to strengthen us to endure this earthly life until that day comes when we see him face to face. God's given us everything. Everything. Is that what you believe? If not, then I have to warn you. Because you have no reason to worship God. But you have every reason to fear him. Because he's holy. And by denying your need for Jesus, guess what? You've left only yourself to answer to God for your sins against him. But I hope that you paid attention to his word this morning and that you see his compassion and grace. Not just to show you who he is, but to, to let you know, to warn you. The joy of the Lord is to show his faithful love and mercy to those who don't deserve it. He takes pleasure in that. It pleases the Father to make himself known to you through his Son, Jesus Christ, who purchased complete forgiveness for all who come to him in faith. And he uses his Holy Spirit to draw our hearts to him in faith by believing his word and understanding our need. So why not take an honest look at yourself this morning in light of who God is? Why not reach out for real wisdom? Consider your need for him this morning. Remember that you're dust. But rejoice that from eternity to eternity, the Lord's faithful love is toward those who fear him. Take David's advice here. Let all that's within you 
Rebel no longer against God, but against your own self uh, delusions of self-sovereignty and, and self-sufficiency. Turn away from your exhausting efforts to convince yourself that you rule your life. You don't. And humbly receive God's truth according to his faithful love. This truth that God reveals to us about himself, it is love. He doesn't have to tell us this. And that truth reveals that you need him, and it reveals that we need him. We all do. And he graciously gives himself to everyone who comes to him in faith. In, in John, he promises he won't turn anyone away. Anyone away who comes to him, convinced of their own need for his mercy, Christ is seated on the throne of grace, and his eternal reign means that nothing, 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 nothing can keep you from his rescuing grace. Nothing can, can keep you uh, or can keep him from rescuing those who find themselves in need of him. But you have to find yourself in need of him. So this morning, I hope that you do. And I want you to confess your need to Christ. Your need for his mercy, he won't turn you away. David ends the psalm with a summons to praise, not just for the individual, but for everyone everywhere, including his own heart again. Look at verse 18. I'll back up a little bit, 17. But from eternity to eternity, the Lord's faithful love is toward those who fear him and his righteousness toward their grandchildren, those who keep his covenant, who, observe, who remember to observe his precepts. Verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, all his angels of great strength who do his word, obedient to his command. Bless the Lord, all his armies, his servants who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works and all the places where he rules. My soul, bless the Lord. Because God is the creator of all things, guess what? God is the ruler of all things. King David knows his own throne is established on earth, but it's nothing compared to God's throne established in heaven. And when David considers God's sovereignty over all things, coupled with God's faithful love and mercy, David can't help but direct all things that were made by the Creator to the worship of the one who sits on the throne. From angels of great strength who do his word and obey his command to his armies of heavenly creatures of all kinds, his servants who do his will and all his works everywhere, God is worthy of their praise. I love how David finishes the psalm in verse 22. Bless the Lord, all his works in all the places where he rules. My soul, bless the Lord. See, God's kingdom rules over all, which means that the purpose of everything and everywhere is for God's own praise. But what gives David a particular joy is knowing that his own heart is ruled by this Lord of mercy, by the one who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. And in response to this, as even as he summons everything else, he's reminded that 
His heart is Christ's throne. And his soul is meant to worship. And so he directs his soul to join in the rest of creation in praise to the king. See, if your heart is ruled by the king of mercy, then you too have every reason to praise him this morning. This is not just an Old Testament psalm that we can gloss over. This is a call for us to join in the worship of our God. You see, you and I, we failed God over and over, right? We've feared man more than we fear the Lord. We've broken his commands. We've done what's right in our own eyes. Over and over again, we've turned away from the one who brought us out of slavery to sin as his own possession. And so God's compassion and his mercy and his grace and his patience and his forgiveness and his faithful love, guess what? None of that can be based on our obedience to him. We deserve his judgment and his wrath, but he gave us his son instead. He gave us Christ The joy of the Lord is to show his faithful love and mercy to those who don't deserve it. And the joy of our hearts is to know the Lord who's shown us his faithful love and mercy through his son, Jesus Christ. So let's not forget all of his benefits. Let all within us bless his holy name. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your great mercy and love given to us fully in Jesus Christ. This morning, I pray that you would help us, those of us who have uh, trusted Christ for our salvation and yet continue to condemn ourselves over past sin, pray today that you would remind us of the freedom that you've separated that sin from us as far as the east is from the west. Pray for those that are attempting to draw near to you by their own efforts that they would understand that that's futile, that they would see how you yourself have come to them in a gift of grace through your son. They would be drawn to you this morning by your spirit according to the truth of your word and they would find forgiveness in Christ once and for all. Lord, we worship you because of your steadfast love, your abounding faithful love to us who do not deserve it. We pray that our lives would be an expression of praise. That as we gather together, that we would continue to sing the praises of our Savior, that we would speak psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We would declare truth together in prayer, in song, in preaching, in conversation that you are who you say you are. You've given us everything we need to be near you. We thank you, God. We praise you for Jesus. And we ask all this in his name. Amen.